If you've been here for a while, uh, last uh, few weeks, or if, or if you're visiting for the first time, or again, listening, and you're coming in on this, um, we've, we've been in the middle of preaching and teaching in the Gospel of Matthew for a while now. And a few weeks ago, we, um, we began preaching through uh, Jesus' first major sermon, and one of the most well-known sermons called the Sermon on the Mount, right? And here toward the beginning of the Gospel, it is in chapter 5, uh, Ricky, Pastor Ricky read through the whole of the sermon a few weeks ago, and then last week preached on the Beatitudes, which we learned are the characteristics of a true follower of God in Christ, and how those characteristics uh, lived out make us salt, right, or a preservation and upholding of the truth, and light and a beacon of the truth, right, to the world, salt and light. Today, we're going to focus on what it means when Jesus says that he fulfills the law and the prophets and examine how Jesus goes deeper into the, the teachings of the law to bring out the true intention, the true deeper meanings of the teachings and the implications of those teachings for the world and for believers. We'll cover the first two teachings Jesus expands on in the law today, and then there's several more that we'll cover, in, uh, so we'll cover the rest of those in subsequent weeks. Often, when I preach, I like to break the passage down um, that we're studying into three points. If you know me and you've heard me preach before, you're always like, here they come again, three points, um, to help the, kind of organize the mind and make, and make notes and, and look at those things over again, and, and, but... Um, and through those points, like a storyteller, I like to, to make a journey to a, to a climax or the height of the main point of the passage by the end. Uh, for better or worse, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to break that today. Um, and, I'm, and we're going to kind of let the cat out of the bag at the beginning, I know, and, and, and stay on a high the whole time, hopefully. Um, so during a, a little bit of history, during our family worship time for the past few months, knowing that we'd be going through Matthew... And also wanting to dive into the life of Jesus um, and his teaching with, firsthand with my family. Um, we have been actually going through the Gospel of Matthew ourselves. And when we were going through uh, examining the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, as we are now, uh, there were two things I kept trying to come back to in the midst of all the teachings throughout the sermon. So basically trying to come back to that 40,000 foot view, right? Um, so through digging deeper into the teachings of the law, or basically all the teaching God has given his people, and exposing the true meaning, the true intention of the law, Jesus shows us, then, how utterly short we fall in keeping it. Without knowing, if, if you didn't know the gospel, the good news, the gospel is good news, right, of our salvation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we should be driven to despair after examining these teachings and being honest with ourselves. Or we should throw our hands up and say, this is impossible. How do you expect me to attain heaven and be with God? I've already failed. I give up. No one can do this. And second, if we do know the gospel, having been given new life in him, we follow him and affirm that we are not good enough to keep all of the fullest teaching of the law to attain a righteousness, a purity that earns favor with God, affirm, and that we affirm that Christ has done it in our place. Then, these teachings, we can see 
uh, through the lens of what a renewed heart and mind should strive for and how a changed life will begin to look like more and more as you love and follow him. So those, those two things to keep in mind. We see it, hope, we, I, 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 as I look out here, we, we all see it from that side, that perspective of the gospel. But as also try to keep it in, in mind as when Jesus is preaching this, he's preaching it to a people who don't know that yet. And so when he says, listen, when you even look lustfully at someone, you are, you are deserving the fires of hell. That's like, what? <laughs> you know, a little bit mind-blowing, right? So keep those two perspectives in view. Today, as we, as we think about the passage from these two points of view through these two sets of lenses, um, then um, through the passage, let's dive in then by reading our passage today. Uh, I should have said this. Turn to Matthew 5, if you haven't done this already, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 30. Verse 17. Jesus was preaching, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire, hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than you lose your whole body and be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, Jesus has come to fulfill. We're going to go back, sorry. We've come a long ways. Let's, let's go back to 17 and, and, and remind us what we just read there. Do not think, he says, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We're going to sit here in this verse for quite a long time. I was telling Ricky this morning, I was getting through the sermon yesterday. I was like five pages in. I'm like, oh, I haven't even got past 17 yet. So <laughs> um, don't worry. I hopefully won't do that. But um, we are going to spend a long time on this because this is very significant, this verse right here. Okay, Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. 
I have come to fulfill them. Jesus um, came to fulfill them. And so we first then, you know, as we're going through this, we kind of ask ourselves, well, what does he mean, right? And in, in, in asking ourselves what he means, I think we need to ask the question first and, and examine what is, what is the law and the prophets that he's talking about? Or, or a similar question, if Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, what specifically did he come to fulfill? When Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, he's speaking to the entirety of what we call the Old Testament. Okay? Um, at that time, the Jewish scriptures, okay? the Hebrew Bible. This includes not only all of its commands, but also the teachings, the covenants, the poems and imagery, and the prophecies. This, by the way, church, should drive us then as followers to know the Old Testament law and the prophets so that, so that we know exactly what Jesus does fulfill. So Mark, set that thing to 10 hours and let's go. Back to Genesis 1. No, okay. I'm kidding. Um, but we should also know that there is the law and prophets, but in addition to that, there's also the rabbinical teachings and the traditions and added teachings accumulated in their history and traditions that sought to explain the law, but in doing so added or took away the fullest meaning of the law or diverted it. Okay? By specifying the law and the prophets, when Jesus later says in his teachings, you have heard it was said, he's saying that, he's saying that he is not fulfilling um, the rabbinical teachings, he's fulfilling the law and the prophets as written by God and given to the people. And correcting the misinterpretation of the rabbinical teachings added on. But this is the point. To those listening to him who knew the Jewish scriptures, Jesus saying that he was the fulfillment, the embodiment of all the law and the prophecies, the very words of God himself to his people was huge. I hope you get that. It's a very bold point and also the crux of his teaching, the pinnacle of history. If he was saying that he not only fulfills the various scattered predictions, but that he was bringing the entirety of the scriptures to their appointed goal, that's big. Everything from the law of Moses, through the books of history, through the teachings of the prophets like Isaiah and Malachi, were moving forward. They were leaning forward in anticipation of this fulfillment when God would renew a people and dwell with them. The more we know the law and the prophets, the imagery, the teachings, prophecies, and commands, the more this statement should cause us to sit up in our chairs and say, wait, what? Wait, please, please explain that. Exactly what do you mean by I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them? Well, this kind of leads, again, in my mind, to a second question, similar. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law then? And specifically, what does he come to fulfill? Fulfill, the word uh, in Greek, means to uphold or establish, but it also means to complete or accomplish. By fulfilling the law then, Jesus was inaugurating the long-awaited age, which would fulfill all the ancient promises. Promises like a true king, who would create a new humanity 
and promises of a new covenant that brings new hearts for obedience, true obedience. This is why we started with the Ezekiel passage this morning. This is what he was promising. With the arrival of Jesus, this new age of fulfillment has dawned. This is exactly what Jesus was preaching and meaning when he preaches, uh, as in uh, um, Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We no longer live in the old covenant of expectation, but in the new covenant, covenant of fulfillment. So what does he fulfill then, church? He fulfills the law. Well, if we look through the law, we see kind of three different aspects of it, right? He fulfills the moral law, the covenant, the covenantal law, and the judicial law. Okay? In the moral law, all the teachings of the Jewish scriptures, starting with the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses, these are the, these are the things saying you shall not kill, right? You shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, so on and so forth. Jesus will begin to delve into their true intent of these teachings then here just in this sermon, just in a bit. This moral code, this purity and holiness that God requires to be near him, to know him, and to be with him, Jesus fulfilled completely. As we examine this soon, we'll see that as God's new people, we are to be enabled to obey this law like this beginning in the heart. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. All the special instructions and codes in the Levitical law are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. As one commentator has put it, he says, Consider the Old Testament stories and instructions related to the temple. God gave Israel the temple as the place to meet with him. Priests represented the people, drew near to God, and offered sacrifices. The whole temple system was designed to echo the Edenic blessing of dwelling with God, while also pointing forward to a new age when God would purify his people to dwell with him forever. When Jesus came, he announced, something greater than the temple is here, Matthew 12, 6. And all the commands associated with the temple find their fulfillment in him. He is the true temple the true high priest, the true final sacrifice. Now those united to him become part of this temple, drawn near to God through Jesus as a new priesthood and offer their whole selves in sacrificial worship. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. And lastly, Jesus fulfills the judicial law. When Jesus fulfills the law, he's also fulfilling this judicial law by personifying God's perfect justice. Matthew, in chapter 12 of his gospel, even quotes this from Isaiah to kind of bring this to light. Um, if you kind of just move a little bit to, to the right, you'll see here he quotes. He says, here's my servant who I, whom I have chosen. The one I love, God says, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A little bit later, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. Church, God is holy. What do we mean by justice? This is where I'm going. God is holy. Absolutely and utterly pure spotless, the most beautiful purity that we cannot grasp 
Therefore, anything that is less than this, that is not in line with him, he must take care of. This is justice. This is also our biggest problem. Because even as we affirm, and if you, you, you can use this as a, as a line in conversation with, with those in the world too, because they'll say the same thing. As we affirm, all the wrongs in the world should be righted. Justice, right? That justice should prevail. We have this underlying you know, urge that justice should prevail. Even as we reaffirm all that, we should be affirming it the same should be done for us. Because we have done wrong. See what I mean? We affirm that all that we have done wrong should be dealt with, punished, paid the penalty for as well. We fall under that justice. And here's the thing. When that penalty, when this penalty should be served against an eternal, infinite purity, it would take an eternal, infinite sentence to fulfill. But the gospel is, God loves us, even though we were enemies because of our sins. But that he also deals justly for those wrongs. He doesn't just hide them. He deals with them. Through punishing, dealing justly with them, by taking it out not on us, but on himself through Christ. So then, he takes on the full judgment and so fulfills the requirements of the judicial law. Jesus fulfills the judicial law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. All of the law and the prophets, he fulfills. We're going to keep moving on now. Verses 18 and 19. We'll be moving just a little bit quicker now. It says in 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, this is just a little aside, whenever he says this, this is a signature saying of Jesus. It's like when, when he's like, there's no, no, like this is his teacher signature, Okay. Not all teachers say this, but Jesus is known to say, truly I say to you, amen and amen, truly, I tell you the truth. Well, this would make sense from the capital T, truth, right? He is the truth. Truly I say to you, it's a signature saying of Jesus. I just thought that was interesting. Underscoring that this is his teaching and the truth from God, since he is God. What God has established then, truly he says to it, what God has established through the giving of the law, which is itself good, will never pass away. Not even the minutest detail, not an iota, not a dot. These are actually little pen marks. Actually, that, uh, iota and dot mean, mean like an apostrophe and a, like a dot of an I. That's what they're talking about. Not, the, NIV, the NIV puts it this way, not the least stroke of a pen. So the minutest detail will not be forgotten or left out, Jesus says. Not only, but here's the thing, not only through the writings, but think about this, ultimately, because it's ultimate fulfillment being complete in Jesus, and he will never pass away or be forgotten. So he's saying this will be eternally going forward. 
And in 19, Jesus establishes the goodness and authority of the law. All of God's words to his people. He, he holds it sacred as the ultimate truth and requires his people to regard it in the same way. Notice, he establishes that those who relax his teachings are not out of the kingdom of heaven, but are least. Those who hold a low view of God's word will be less esteemed. But the converse is also true, church, and should propel us this way, to hold it in high esteem. Those who treasure God's words, who, obey, who both obey and teach them, uphold them in high regard through their lives, and teach others to do likewise, are held in high esteem by God. So church, the conclusion at this point with these two verses, God's words through the law and the prophets, which are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, are to be held as the final truth. They are precious, and they show the way to God, and ultimately reveal himself to us, insofar as he has chosen to reveal himself to us. God's words, the law and the prophets, God's words to to his people, reveal his essence, and they're sacred, and embodied in himself through Jesus. To say that they are important to us because they are important to him is to be conservative, right? Verse 20, for I tell you, this one should hit home. After he says, I come to fulfill the law and the prophets, and then he's going to go on to explain what the law and the prophets are exactly. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus didn't have the attention of his listeners by saying that he was a fulfillment of the law and the prophets, God's ultimate word, by the way, I meant to say that he fulfills, he's the ultimate word, as John has opened up his gospel saying he is the word of God, the fulfillment of it. If he didn't grab his attention by saying that, then he should have their, your, and our attention by now, right? The Pharisees and scribes, church, were held as the most holy of people. Their devotion to upholding the law, or rather their interpretation of the law, was renowned. They are famously known to hold to the letter of the law, again, their interpretation of the law, by going so far as to even tithe the littlest, smallest things, herbs and spices from their garden, right? Giving even the least of their possession, possessions in as an outward sign of their supposed devotion to God. They made a holy living not only their lives, they made holy living not their lives, but also their professional careers. You really are not going to get better than these guys. Church, we, we see a glimpse of this, trying to describe this a little bit more to you. We see a glimpse of this in the former life of Paul, who himself was a Pharisee, Saul, right? We read this in his letter to the Philippians. You don't need to turn there, but it's in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's he saying there? Pure blood. I'm racially pure. Can you say that? He says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Basically, one who upholds the law best is what he's saying here. 
There is no one higher. There's no way to do better than a Pharisee. Again, on, think on the outside, right? As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Look at yourself. Can you say, as for re- legalistic righteousness, faultless? Right? Now, we know he goes on to, let, to later say that, um, that I hold all of this as rubbish, right? In regards to, 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 to this, um, sorry, distracted, in, in, in regards to being a Pharisee and legalistic righteousness. He's faultless. What Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How many of you can say, I am legalistically faultless, and yet you have to be better than that? Jesus says. So knowing the right living of the Pharisees then, or let's put a modern parallel to it, huh? If we're not quite getting this. I thought of this. Unless you're more saintly, how about this, or better than Mother Teresa. Have you done more than Mother Teresa in good works? Knowing how good she was, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not knowing the gospel, that makes me weep, right? And if we assume that God sees and judges us based on our righteous actions and lives as was taught through the Pharisees and teachers of the law, through upholding the law through your actions, what is your response then? You know, what's your next thought? I don't know about you, but again, if not knowing the gospel at this point, I can tell you my next thought is this. Wait, wait, what? How? You can't actually expect this of me, can you? But Jesus, church, he keeps adding fuel to the fire. He begins clarifying the law. He tells his listeners what it really means to uphold it and why you'd have to live a better life life than the, the Pharisees. We'll be going through these teachings in a bit from our point of view, but, but again, keep this lens, as I said from, from the beginning. But if you fast forward to verse 48 here, the last verse of chapter 5, you'll see Jesus punctuate all these teachings right after telling them that to uphold the law means you have to love your enemy. He says this, it's a gut punch. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, here's naturally where my mind goes if I'm not knowing the gospel. I say, so Jesus, you're telling me that I will not get into the kingdom of heaven if I don't consistently live in such a way as to never have contempt for anyone, always settle on any matter quickly, never look at or think about another person lustfully, ever, Never say anything that isn't true. Don't resist an evil person, but go the extra mile with him and love and pray for my enemies. In short, be perfect always in my very heart. What then am I to do? How am I supposed to surpass the Pharisees by living the letter of the law in my very heart? With my very will of every moment. (laughs) I've already failed. Woe is me. But you see, this is exactly what Jesus was trying to drive home. He wants us to beg this question. 
For only then can we see that we are utterly, as we said last week, poor in spirit. That this is so beyond our ability that we are not even in the realm of attaining God through what we can do. That we can bring nothing to him. Only then, when we realize this, are we poor in spirit. And only then are we blessed. It is then that Jesus will point you back to this. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is hitting home the point that his people need to recognize that they need someone to save them. That this is what God has been doing from the very beginning and that this ultimate salvation is now at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. Jesus will fulfill the plan of salvation. He will live perfectly from the heart, loving and serving God perfectly as the law has required. He will be the one to deserve all the love and blessing of eternal dwelling with and happiness of God. He will be the one to earn it completely. Then, place it freely on us. Then, take all the punishment, the justice for living, for ourselves, for our self-loving, our selfishness, not upholding the truth, not loving God, every unloving act, and thought and intention, he will take that punishment. The justice served for that upon himself in our place to swallow up infinite, eternal justice, absorb it so that he might bring us back to him. Church, how he loves us. With that said then, that's the gospel. He has served and fulfilled the law in our place so that we can be with him. Let's turn to his teachings then, where he brings home these points. The first one is in verse 21. Let's look at these issues of murder and adultery that Jesus expounds in verses 21 through 30. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus leads off here with the external action of obeying the law. He wants to present, you have heard it said this. But then what does he say in verse 22? He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus illuminates the commandment then. He goes back to the heart source of murder. Anger and contempt. Okay? I'm going to say this again in, in, with, with the, in regards to the next passage, lust, but he moves that line back. He says, you say the line is here. Everything up to this line is okay. The line is murder. I say, nope, line's back here. All that stuff that leads up to it, the anger and contempt, yeah, the law is speaking to that too. When you say, idiot, so it goes on here, it says, um, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, or raka, right? You fool, you idiot. 
um, will be liable to the hell of fire. That term, rakha, idiot, fool, but more than that, uh, it, it means idiot and fool. It's, it's more than that, though. Okay, because you're like, well, I've called someone an idiot, but it was kind of in jest and joking. What, that, it, it means more than that. It, it, it really means the intent behind the word. There's more intent behind the word than the word itself. Okay, and that intent was one of utter contempt for someone, an anger and a bitterness from the heart toward that person. Jesus is saying then that that person, that one that has the anger in his heart, that's where murder starts from, okay? And if we can keep going back and finding the seed of that source, he's trying to, he's trying to weed it out, right? He's coming to the very source of it, down to the very heart of it. That type of person, you, <laughs> you are in danger of the fires of hell, he says. But he goes even further. Jesus elaborates on anger. More, he says now in verses 23 and 24, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go be reconciled to him, and then come offer your gift. He says now, not just you being angry and full of contempt, but if you have caused a rift, or even if the rift was caused by your brother, Go and make things right. Even stop giving your gift to God to do this. He's saying, how can you be right with God if you're not right with your brother? Okay. And then he elaborates even more in verses 25 through 26. Being right with your brother has spiritual implications, he says. Here Jesus shows that being reconciled is so important that, again, if you are not reconciled, if you do not have things right from the inside out, you are liable to pay the debt. Maybe physically through prison, but ultimately spiritually until you have paid the last penny. So in these three scenes, Jesus delves to the heart of the matter. Murder may be the worst and ultimate expression of sin, but Jesus is saying that as you go back further and further to reveal where it started, even that is liable to judgment. The law speaks to that. But let me be clear, church, that the, on this and in the next section, Jesus is not saying that murder and anger are the same thing. Okay? And he says that lust in the heart and fulfilling it through adultery are not the same thing. What I mean is, is, is you can't, don't make the excuse of, well, I've already thought about this person in a bad way. I'm going to just go fulfill my whole, because it's, it's the same thing. No, he, he's not saying that. He's, he, he's trying to drive home the point that the law speaks to all of that, okay? He's saying, he's showing that the law is not limited to the external, but reaches all the way down to the heart, heart of the matter. Again, causing us to search deep for our intentions, for our true nature without him. But taken from the lens that Jesus fulfills this perfectly from the heart, uh, sorry, per, uh, fulfills this perfection from the heart and actions for us, we can look at this and learn about how God actually wants us, his followers, to be. What the kingdom of heaven is to be like. Again, from Ezekiel, he takes the heart of stone out, puts the heart of flesh in, and says, listen, here's, here's how kingdom people act. Enabled through the Spirit. So, 
church then? The question for us on this side is, how is my inner life regarding anger and contempt? When I get upset, do I humble myself, forget my pride, and seek reconciliation, whether it's my fault or not? And then another thing, what more can I do? How can I grow so that my life reflects Jesus and honors God more and more in this way? You see, you don't have to do it to earn God's favor. Jesus has done that. He fulfilled it for you. But now we can look on this side and think, this is how kingdom people act. God, help me to do this. Spirit, live in my life and change me to be more like this. So on that we reflect. I would put that in your notes. Read, uh, then we go on to verse 27. He says, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, Jesus states the law he's about to elaborate on. Taken at face value, like I said before on murder, everything is acceptable up to committing adultery. And that is what they preached. But that is, that is where the line is drawn, like I said before. But Jesus scratches out the line and redraws it much further back. Here's where the line says, he says, But I say to you, here's the new line, <laughs> that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus then states in verses 29 through 30, so after redrawing the line, he wants to make sure you know how serious this is. Okay? How serious sin is. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of, uh, of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Does he actually mean gouge out your eye and cut off your hand? You would think, well, that's just silly, right? Well, yeah, but there have been people I've read on this verse, there have been people in history that have done kind of crazy things because they kind of took it literally. <laughs> okay? Um, no, he doesn't mean that. If he did, we'd actually, <laughs> and we actually went through with it, we'd have a lot of eyeless and handless people, right? Um, <laughs> but these are just pictures, church, and they're pretty graphic pictures to show how serious, what he's trying to get to is how serious it is with which we need to be acting regarding this sin. Again, he's pointing to the nature of the sin, where it starts in the heart and the mind. And he's saying, from where it starts, cut it off. Cut off the sin as soon as it starts. Any lustful intent cut it off right there. That's, it, it's, it's just how serious it is. From the lens of being the redeemed then, this law and purity of the heart being perfected through Jesus for us, remember that we can reflect on our inner life in this regard. Church, ask yourselves these such questions then as this, how is my thought life? Not only, you know, not only how do I act towards others, but how in my heart do I hold them? 
how as a redeemed child from the curse of the law can I seek to protect myself then also and seek Christ to become pure like him in every thought and intention of the heart. Those are the things that we reflect on. Wrapping it up then. Finally, church. I haven't been going around a lot, but we, I do want you to turn here. We're going to go to Romans 7 and 8. And I'm going to read through it, if you could allow me, from, from the NIV. It's a long passage where Paul is expounding on the law, on the law and its fulfillment in Jesus and the implications for us in this. It explains much of what Jesus was preaching from, the viewpoint of those who are redeemed and how the saved are to live. And this will be a bulk of our conclusion. It says it well. And let me, uh, uh, it, it, Paul, as Peter had said in one of his letters, says things that are kind of confusing. <laughs> he writes in a high way, and so it can be a little bit confusing. I, in, in this section, it can be just a little bit. It gets a little bit wordy and complicated in mind, so, so pay attention quick. But I did write out here in the, as maybe a little bit of a summary in my own mind um, earlier in the margins of my Bible in a, in, where it says um, this section on Romans 7.7 7 is where we're going to start. And I say this, uh, it, the law, exposes a standard outside of me. Sin was still there, but I didn't know it as sin or experience it as sin or wrong, not until the standard outside of me, God's moral law, told me my desires are wrong. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the gist of this, okay? So follow along with me regarding this, the law. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. 
For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, church, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, church, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature any longer, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So then, church, let this be that final word. The law, God's word revealing to us who he is and how we are to relate to him. And finally, how he will bring about his glory through the saving of his people is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And having saved us, we are now a people living by the Spirit, heirs with Christ, brought to a new life, a higher calling, a heart of flesh, not of stone, where the deeds of the flesh, worldly flesh can be put to death and a life in the Spirit enabled to become more 
and more like Christ can be lived. Church, the kingdom of heaven is here because Jesus has fulfilled the entirety of the law. So let us go and live for him and glorify him with our lives accordingly out of love and thanksgiving to him. Let's pray. Father, no amount of thanks is enough for what you've done for us. That Jesus came to do what we cannot, to fill, fulfill all of what you require to be with you. And uh, may we recognize that we bring nothing, that we are poor in spirit, May we recognize this gift that, that Christ has fulfilled all of what is necessary, that we bring nothing to it. Our salvation to be with you. But then on the other side of that, to recognize because that's happened, we can live in love and gratitude. We can, we can put to death the misdeeds of the body and live as kingdom people, free to love and worship and glorify our God and become more and more like Christ and then someday be with you forever where there's no tear, there's no injustice, there's fullness and joy and light in the pureness and holiness of our God. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.